Hi guys, and welcome to Honest Theology, a podcast where we get to ask real questions about a real faith and a real God. We're continuing our series on the Trinity, part three, um, but talking about part two, the Son. The only explanation I could come up with was someone must have stuck those pages in afterwards. Why don't you have a problem with that? <laughs> I don't have a problem. Why? <laughs> what is that about? I have no idea. I'm Paul Serstad with Dr. Hugh Osgood. Let's be honest. Okay, Hugh, we're going to dive straight in there. Um, the Son, otherwise known as Jesus, is he God? Yes. He is, he is God. As in like demigod, half God, all God, or like 1%. <laughs> fully God and fully human. Hmm. Okay, how does that work? Because there's that bit in where it talks in Philippians where he gives up his um he gives up his uh right to be identical with God or equal with God. Um does doesn't that kind of give an indication that he is like rejecting that deity um at that point? No, I don't think that's what it means. I think that Jesus comes to earth and he's still fully God. Okay, he's laid certain things aside. There's always a big debate as to what he laid aside okay. um, in order to fully embrace humanity. But there are th there's clearly that sense in the way that he speaks that he hasn't laid aside his divinity. Things like, before Abraham was, I am. Clear statement that he's claiming pre-existence. And when you look at those kind of things, you can see that he's really claiming divine nature. So is, is Jesus Yahweh? When Yahweh is used in the Old Testament, and it's just the vowels, as we talked about last time, it really is for referring to God in his triune completeness. So uh -huh. there's a sense in which, yeah, when it refers to God in that way, Jesus is included in that Godhead. Okay, so Yahweh is like the combination of all three. Well, it's it obviously it, not it combination. It embraces, it embraces the Trinity. The Trinity. Yes, yes. So each one is part of Yahweh. Um, you said in the last... Um, uh, podcast about when I talked about Jesus dying you you said this thing about almost like the father came to die as well is so is Jesus is Jesus the father is is that the same I, oh, no I, I don't think I said the father came to die as well I think no. we talked about the fact that there was such a closeness mm -hmm. in the Godhead that the pain of the crucifixion would have affected the father you asked me what was the father thinking or feeling when Jesus died. Yeah. And we talked about just the closeness of relationship and how the father would have felt the pain of giving up his only son in that way. Yeah. So we, we often talk about this moment. We say, um, you know, when witnessing to people, we say, God sent his son to die for you. And that, for me, creates a confusion because that separates him from his deity, his godness. Um, why don't we say God came to die for you? We don't say that. We say God sent his son, which then for us being in the society that we live in, we do think of those demigods. Um, well, you've, you've got that statement in Corinthians where God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. So there's a sense in which that level of identity with God the Father and God the Son is there all the time. So why do you, why why do you find the confusion? Why don't we use that language? Um, like if I say to someone who doesn't really understand the, 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 the Trinity, because that, that is a 
big thing to get our heads around. We're doing all these episodes mm -hmm. on it. If I say to, to a young person at one of the youth groups, yeah, God sent his son to die for you, I can pretty much guarantee that in their heads, it's not God died for me. Mm -hmm. It's God's son, which does to any average person doesn't sound like God. It sounds like something other than God. So you then have to work back and look at all the claims that Jesus made in his lifetime and the fact that he accepted worship, the fact that he could claim to be without sin, all of those kind of things put Jesus into a completely different category. So you're then faced with the fact that you have someone who is fully human because mm. there was no doubt about that. All human characteristics were there in Jesus, the way that he lived. And yet he was fully divine. That There's a sense in which he hadn't as it were, given up that divinity. He came to earth as God made flesh. So, yes, there are things that are laid aside in that coming, but he still keeps that divinity. But should we communicate that more clearly? Is that an error in us? Because oh. I, I, I still hold on to that. I, when I'm doing the gospel presentation, I can, uh, uh, to, to especially youth groups, I will say, God came down as man. Mm-hmm. I, I almost do avoid the the God sent his son. Yeah, well, because, great. I think because it because for it me feels it like elicits confusion. Yeah. And I would do the same. I can talk about God paid the price for us on the cross. I can talk in that kind of way. And I think in some ways that brings a greater clarity. But I'm not arguing with the scripture where it, it says no, God sent his only son, because that also makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um okay. So uh, there's this also when Jesus uh demonstrates his relationship with his uh with with his father he he submits to the father mm -hmm. does that mean that jesus is lower than the father <sighs> no because there is an equality in the godhead so father son and holy spirit are co-equal they're co-eternal but there is a sense in which Jesus, in his earthly ministry, is submitted to the Father. Mm -hmm. He only does the things he sees the Father does. And this links in with what you were bringing from Philippians about how he laid certain things aside. So there's that working out a relationship between the Father and the Son on the earth where you can see something of that submission, but it doesn't mean that he's no longer equal with the Father. Is it more of a demonstration rather than a... A demonstration to us because we because we're to follow him and be yeah, like yeah I think that's possible because he talks about I and the Father are one so you've got that closeness of unity yeah but there's also a sense in which he's living out a life before us that exemplifies what we're to live to about that statement though uh, I and the Father are one that is often um, people can argue that going we are of one accord we are of mm -hmm. one one mind mm -hmm. like the same thing that if you uh, say that this cup is red we are one in saying that this cup is red. It's sort of brownish red, isn't it? Okay, we are not one in saying <laughs> this cup is red. But if it was red, um, what, what, what do you say to that? Well, yes, I mean, there is a sense in which being of the same mind can express oneness, but that falls a long way short of the kind of oneness that Jesus was speaking of with his father. It doesn't mean that they just agreed. It actually means that they're of the same substance, the same essence. There's that level of unity there. There's oneness in God. As the Old Testament went to great lengths to point out the Lord mm. your God is one Lord. It's coming out of that too. So if Jesus is God, he is one with the Father, why does he spend so much time praying to him? 
Well, because he's one with the Father. It's a, it's, it's a, a coming together in that unity, isn't it? It's not, it's but if not, you are one, you wouldn't need to have moments of that. You'd just be able to walk about like, guide him all the time. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I but mean... But he takes these times out. He takes this, he goes away from everybody and takes this days to just spend time so with So you, you, you don't see unity as being something that can be expressed in conversation? and that kind of communion i mean even even before jesus comes there's that conversation that takes place in heaven where it says let us make man in our own image i can't see a problem with god the father talking to god the son in eternity or on earth yeah okay um yeah good nice <laughs> uh in terms of praying when um when jesus demonstrates how to pray he he praise and he gives this big revelation by going abba you know father which is i, I think the first time that it's used so it's a big like whoa you're calling god dad mm-hmm. um is that something for us to do um is that how we should pray should we be praying to the father there's nothing problematic with us praying to the father we can pray to the father we can pray to the son we can have a conversation with the holy spirit that's not a problem the 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 challenge i get sometimes when people sort of do daddy god abba is that we lose that sense of reverential respect that i think is really important in a relationship yeah i'm 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 glad that god is my my father and i can call him daddy but at the same time i've got a huge amount of respect for him so yeah i think jesus is is giving us much that we can pick up on in his relationship being as it were and exemplifying the kind of relationship we can have with the father so so is that more than the abba the daddy um thing was that more for jesus no to say no i think i think jesus certainly had that relationship with his father but you can also see in the way that, that jesus talks about the father that there's a huge respect yeah and sometimes i think that what we do in church is we lose the respect to the point where we only pick up on the intimacy and we mm-hmm. need both mm-hmm. okay so we even though jesus says you know jesus is called the media mediator mm-hmm. between between mm-hmm. god the father and us mm-hmm. um we we can still be praying directly to the Father yeah. or to Jesus yeah. or to leave both of them out altogether and go to the Holy Spirit. You don't. You I know, don't, I know, I know. I'm, just, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Uh, but that's okay. Yeah, I think so. Okay, I want to I talk about... Um, the incarnation of Jesus, all right? Uh, Jesus becoming flesh. How's that work? How does it work? Yeah. Break it down for me, Hugh. Break it down. Waka for waka. You. <laughs> oh wow! It, it, it's it's one of those great things that you you can't just break down. It, it it will always be a mystery. How can the eternal God? Be prepared to come and be an embryo in a womb. That is just mind-blowing. More than just prepared to be, because the willingness, I think, people might be able to get their heads around. I think people do struggle, if we're honest about it, on how he actually did it. Sure. Um, like how did he actually get from heaven to earth as a bloke? 
I don't know. You don't know? Don't, Hugh, come I, on. I mean, what, yes, you're, 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 no, 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 no. no I, I don't know what you're asking for, some sort of biological explanation. Yeah, here. let's go for I, that. No, I don't know. And the reality is that, that the incredible thing is that, that God, who as that second person in the Trinity had been eternally existing mm-hmm. is prepared to come and take human flesh it had been announced announced in the garden of eden it's been anticipated all through the old testament but yep. still it is an incredible thing when god actually does that and, so this this I, I don't know what that meant if you're going to say to me what must it have felt like for jesus just to be a few cells dividing in the womb i don't uh, know no, okay fair enough <laughs> okay, but all right so then is this whole concept of his physical being of Jesus, right? Because because he is eternal. Before the moment of his um, his incarnation, was he physical before that, or did his physicality begin at his birth? For me, I would say the physicality began at his birth. One of the difficulties is that you have a lot of what's called anthropomorphic language in the Old Testament uh-huh. where God is given sort of bodily form and spoken of in that kind of way. And there are some people who think because that language is used, then God must have been physical. But for me, it makes a lot more sense to believe that when Jesus took on flesh, that was when he took on flesh. So those encounters that we see before the birth of Jesus that people put down to as God, like, for instance, with Abraham, yeah. uh, with Jacob, yeah, Theophanes, Christophanes, appearances, uh, Moses before, even. generally considered to be appearances. So, you know, I don't know what that would have meant exactly. So it could have been just Jacob-like. No, 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 no. I don't see it like that. I think that God chose to appear in that kind of way. And I, I would make a distinction between appearing in flesh and taking on flesh. And I think the way that Jesus took on flesh actually is what incarnation is about which is different from those old testament appearances okay so is that like a submission to the flesh no i I don't mean that in in the in the sinful way i mean like being willing to be bound by it yeah to a large extent i mean this is why we can talk about sort of um jesus laying certain things aside yeah yeah in his in his physicality there was a limitation which he hadn't known in that spirituality before he took on flesh. So your understanding of the previous um, moments that God appears on earth uh, would be that he is appearing in flesh. Appearing in flesh, I would say, rather than taking on flesh. Because there's something about Jesus having taken on human flesh that is is a huge thing. It's it's really big that God should be prepared to come and live amongst us in that kind of way. There are other faiths that talk about incarnations. But actually, when we come down to what Christianity understands by the incarnation, it's very distinct that God himself should take on flesh in that kind of way to actually grow up as a human being, be amongst us. I mean, he just took on everything that was to be human. That's why we talk about him being fully human as well as fully divine he took on everything of our humanity there's um so i I have this understanding of um of how i work around like uh eternity of it being a um i I mean i don't know if this is right it just helped me when i was a kid and i was like oh this kind of makes sense of heaven being this place that time isn't existent because time is a creation by god and therefore eternity just laps over all of it um so if jesus uh died and rose again and entered heaven, is the possibility that they are meeting in those instances the post... This has been like Back to the Future, isn't it? It is Back to the Future, yes. but it works when you remove time from the equation. 
Yeah, the difficulty is when you remove time from the equation, it makes it very difficult for, for us sitting down here to think in terms of time. And we can get in a right old muddle if we try and do that. I think the reality okay, is... Okay, he gets in the car, goes at 60 miles an hour, goes back yes, in time. Yes, I know, I've watched it as well. <laughs> I actually haven't. Have you not? <laughs> no, um, I should. Yeah. But is, is that a possibility? Do you think that's why Americans are scared to go above 60? <laughs> are they? I don't know. <laughs> um, in is it a certain 60 car? or is it 80? I can't remember. I think it's 60 something. Yeah, something. Well, anyway, come on, we can. But are they, um, is that a possibility that they could be, or um, is that just like a, a big no no for everybody? It almost pushes it into the realm of being comprehensible. And what God okay. has sought to do is to bring things to us in a way that we can comprehend. Yeah. I think once you get outside of time and start looking into those kind of things, there are certain things about it that are helpful in terms of understanding eternity in the way mm. that you did as a child and thought, yeah, that's great. I can see all of that. But there's also a sense in which redemption history has to be historically unfolded. Otherwise, it, when did it happen? How did it happen? You know, it, yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. That point is where we have to realize that God not only has created time, but has chosen to operate within time as well. Yeah, okay, as a choice, yeah. Um, when, we, when I talk about him being bound by flesh, because that was really helpful what you said about, um, yeah, the, the bound. I'm just getting a note that it was 88 miles per hour. It was 88 miles per 88 hour. 88 miles per hour. We were both uh, wrong. Yeah, uh, not 60. Oh, crap. Anyway, um, <laughs> Really helpful what you said about Jesus taking on flesh rather than just appearing in flesh. Now, when he takes on flesh, there are these moments in the Bible where Jesus doesn't seem to know the answer. Mm -hmm. um, is, is that because he's given that up uh, for that time? Because he is bound by flesh? I think that has to be a consideration. Because even the sun doesn't of, know when yes, the uh, yeah, end times. Yes. Yeah, those kind of things. Um, I don't know on that particular one. I was thinking you probably would go there because that's rather a difficult one to know. Is mm. that something that actually somehow God is in, in his triunity has felt that, okay, that stays with the Father? I, I don't know. That's a difficult one to know the, yeah. the answer to. But yes, there are times when Jesus clearly is showing the fact that he is limited, limited in some way. And is that, within the flesh. Is that just pre-resurrection? Because after his resurrection, he seems a bit different. Yeah, it is very different after um, the resurrection. So, but he still, he still has human form, even though there are changes Yeah, but the limitations seem to have completely Yeah, a lot gone. of the limitations have, yes. Um, yeah. You know, appearing at will and all those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, let's, let's go back to this inc incarnation moment. Uh, so he is born of a virgin, Mary, um, just why, why is that important? Why is the virgin birth important to the Christian faith? I think it's important because, well, first of all, it's heralded in the Old Testament. So God had that intention that this was going to be the case. Fulfillment of prophecy. Yeah, fulfillment of prophecy. Okay. Seed of woman, that's all part of that whole principle there. And there is a sense in which it's used within sort of understanding to realize that this had to be a collaborative act with God somehow mm -hmm. so that it wasn't just, um, you know, because there are in certain parts of the animal kingdom the possibility for um, a birth to occur without there being any sort of sexual engagement. And that kind of would normally produce a female offspring. So we've got something quite remarkable happening there. Yeah. And so part of what we're seeing is, is God demonstrating his absolute involvement in the birth of, of Jesus. 
So the virgin birth, I think, is important for that particular reason. To demonstrate God's involvement in it. Yes, I think so. So uh, we've, we've said that Jesus is God, um, and uh, Mary being the, the virgin who gave birth to mm-hmm. Jesus. Does that make her mother of God? Wow, you've, you, you've hit a big question there in church history, because there was a point where people were really struggling with this. Yeah. And there was one uh, theory that maybe God was the father of Jesus' spirituality, and Mary was the mother of his physicality. Oh, but when okay. you look at it like that, you end up with a little bit of a problem because it really makes Jesus into something very different from us. It's like a demigod. Well, you know, two, two persons split in one. That, uh-huh. That's not a comfortable thing. So at one of the church councils, they came to the very correct decision, I think, biblically, that Jesus is fully human, fully divine. Now, one of the consequences of that was that they then started using the title Mother of God for Jesus so at that particular point, we then get into a different way of looking at, at Mary, which I don't think has always been that helpful. Why not? Because it brings in that sense of that where you'd gone from a situation where you were thinking that, that maybe Mary just gave uh, rise to his physicality, suddenly you've involved Mary in giving rise to his spirituality as well. So you're beginning to push a position where it looks like the father and the Mary are, uh, Mary are co-equal, in the generation oh, okay. of Jesus. And that's when it starts getting complicated because I don't think that that is correct. Do you think she has some special place, though, in, um, I don't want to say in heaven, but in creation? Like, is she, is she looked she, upon more well, she favorably? Was cho- she was chosen, wasn't she? She yeah. was chosen as the one who should do this amazing thing, give birth to the Christ. And you cannot take that away. I mean, some traditions blessed. hold her in such reverence. Yes, and I think some of that comes from a, a misunderstanding of Theodocus, that sense of mother of God, okay. and almost making her co-equal with God. And I think that's something that we need to avoid. So that's where I would come from. I would come from a position where I would certainly respect Mary as the one who was chosen to, to bear the Christ child. But for me, it doesn't put her in an exalted position. Mm-hmm. If I look at the account of the day of Pentecost, she was just there as one of the others. And one of the things that's quite remarkable is that incident that took place at the cross. And I see that as a fulfillment of the prophecy that Simeon gave her when she presented Jesus in the temple. And he said, a sword will pierce your own heart also. And I think that was necessary. I think what happened when Jesus was on the cross and he deliberately says to Mary, John and John, behold your mother, behold your son. It was almost like a separating out. And I think the reason for that was so that on the day of Pentecost, Mary could receive Christ as her savior, Mm. her Lord, into her being, new life, in a way that was totally different from the way that she'd given birth to him in the first place. So just because she gave birth to him, that doesn't save her. I think think she still needed the redemptive act of Christ. I think she experienced... On the day of Pentecost, the power of God coming into her in exactly the same way as the other 119 in the upper room. Oh, okay, okay. I thought you were going to go the same way as when she conceived. No, um, I think it's very different. Yeah, um, okay. Um, Another take on the whole Mary situation is, um, uh, you've probably probably heard it, uh, of one woman's lie about an affair that got really out of hand. It certainly um, did, if that was the case. <laughs> yeah, which is like well, why we're talking about it now. Because um, I think to a, on a 21st century lens, we don't, we don't be, you know, people don't believe in 
and I'm talking about people who are apart from faith. Um, people don't believe in miracles. People don't expect miracles. I can, re- I can remember, you know, when I first started looking at the Bible and uh, I heard someone read something from Isaiah 53 about all that happened about Jesus. The only explanation I could come up with was someone must have stuck those pages in afterwards. Yeah, I just yeah. couldn't get my head around the fact that prophecy was so accurate. And the whole fact that it was prophesied that a virgin would give birth and all of these kind of things, you know, you just can't compute that. So you try and find a way around it, put the pages in afterwards or something like that, or say it's a big story that got out of hand. But actually, when, you, when you've had an encounter with the risen Jesus, you have to backtrack from that. And yeah. you realize that, no, 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 he, he did come in the flesh. It was genuine. And, you know, he wasn't the product of some shabby deal on the back street that mm. Jake, uh, Joseph couldn't get his head around. This was a genuine miracle uh, that took place in someone who God had chosen. OK, so let's look at um, the early life of Jesus. Um, I just want to quickly glance to his brothers. OK. They didn't seem to recognize him as God. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- why is that? Well, because honestly, he he grew up amongst them, having taken our humanity. He he was not um, going to, from day one on the earth, start walking on water or anything like I that. would. I'd be like, yeah, check no, this know, out, Mom. Yeah, yeah, that'd be impressive, wouldn't <laughs> it? Californian really? Jesus coming back. Yes, I know. It's very good. <laughs> and I know you went enough to know you probably would have done, but hey. <laughs> but the... The the thing is interesting that Jesus did not start moving in the miraculous until that period of ministry began when he was going to have that teaching period that led up to the moment of his death. And he knew from the beginning that that was why he'd come. He didn't Mm. just come to teach. He came to lay his life down for us. And so he was all the time thinking, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Did he know he was God from a from a child, do you think? Oh, yes. I mean, you know, when he was in the temple as a 12-year-old, which was the, the only real opportunity we get to see the, the childhood of Jesus, when he says, I must be about my father's business, and he's not he, talking he, was, about Joseph. he wasn't yeah, talking about Joseph. Do, do, I know we don't have much record on this, but do you think Mary and Joseph knew who he was? Yes, I do. Okay. I, so, I mean, because I, I guess Mary had that encounter. So did yeah, Joseph, too. Joseph. Yeah. But did, they, did they understand the gravity of it? This is Yahweh become flesh perhaps mercifully they didn't because i mean imagine jesus wrapped in cotton wool and sort of you know worshipped as a child and okay there was the instance with the shepherd and that but then then remarkably i mean i think god must have chosen them for their level headedness to be honest yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) okay we're not not going to make a big deal out of this we're not going to sell this in the sun or something we're going to just live this out quietly and and raise him in a normal way as possible so it doesn't surprise me that his brothers and his sisters really did yeah, the Jerusalem. Yeah, but they uh, they, yeah. they they were brought up in an environment where they were treated as as equals in the household, mm. and so it was difficult, wasn't it? When Jesus starts moving in his ministry, I don't think Joseph and Mary were surprised if Joseph was still alive at that particular point. Yeah, because he but, disappears, doesn't he? Yeah, but I think the brothers. <laughs> it's not surprised that he, they were surprised. It was like, wow. Why, was... why why is there such a lack of records about his younger life? Well, because there wasn't anything particularly spectacular about his early life. I mean, people have tried to write it since. We've got apocryphal gospels where people have tried to, you know, come up with various things that Jesus might have done in order to celebrate him, look bigger, make him a celeb rather than the son of God. And, you know, 
the church in the early days was wise enough to look at those things and realize they were just tribute literature. They weren't real records of what had happened. So I think the childhood of Jesus was remarkably normal, apart from those conversations when he was uh, putting the pressure on the people in the temple. Yeah. Okay. And then Jesus grown up. He is in his ministries, in his three years. I know where you're going to go with this. You're just going to go with that, I, you know, before Abraham was, I am. But I, it's, for a lot of people, that's not enough. Why didn't he declare so obviously that he is God? I, and if not that, why didn't the writers of the Gospels make it really apparent? Because otherwise there wouldn't be this dispute. We wouldn't have the Jehovah Witness um, branch or we wouldn't have the, uh, you know, Islam wouldn't have such a way of arguing with, you know, he didn't even say it. Um, I'd, you know, make it make I think it there's clear. enough there. There's enough there to see that Jesus knew who he was. And you can't get away from the fact that there are claims in the Gospels to why divinity. Would, why, well, why would he, the he writers really... Well, they were coming to terms with it too, weren't they? Okay. They were coming to terms with it too. But there's, there's ample in there to make us realize that Jesus was claiming to be divine. Do you think they struggled with it? Uh, I think they probably did. They probably struggled equally with the fact that a lot of the Jews didn't struggle with it and thought, we know exactly what he's claiming. Let's stone, stone him for it, you know. So, so we can say he yeah. didn't claim it. But I mean, the reason he was crucified was because as far as they were concerned, he made himself equal with God. So it wasn't quite so hidden. I think the people that were closest to him were probably struggling more than others because of just the, the normalness in which which he lived amongst them, the normality that was there. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting point. But then, you know, we had someone in Bromley who uh, obviously was making her living by being the Queen lookalike, you know? She was one of these people that, you know, they'd wheel out to open fates because she just looked so like the Queen, had right. her hair done like this and everything else. But, you know, if she was in Bromley High Street every few minutes saying, you know who I am? Do you know who I am? You'd realise straight away that she wasn't the Queen. No. Because the Queen doesn't go around saying, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Then there's something about when you overplay the yeah, claim yeah. that makes you question the, the, the accuracy of it. Okay, Jesus uh, comes to save, yeah? Um, yeah. His name means uh, save. Savior. Savior, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, now, there's this passage that says, by no other name uh, are we saved. Mm -hmm. But his name isn't Jesus. It is Yeshua. Mm -hmm. So are we not following a false name by proclaiming Jesus all the time and not Yeshua? Mm-hmm. I don't, so. I don't think so. I don't think so. Why not? Because it's, it's, it's the same name. It's the same name. It's just, you know, one of it's in, in Hebrew, one of it, you can say it in whatever language you want. But it's there's still the, Jesus. There's also the, um, the, the what they... We're they, not talking about sort of magic formula here. You've got to get exactly the right word, like abracadabra, and suddenly everything opens. No, but there is that Greek corruption that people talk about, uh, the Jesus, which means hail Zeus, which there's that theory that... They twisted the name Yeshua to Jesus um, to just praise their own God. Is, is there 
Does that resonate? Well, even if they did twist the name to praise their own God, it doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus is the one by whom we must be saved. Yeah. You, know, you can go around proclaiming Zeus, but it's not going to get you to heaven, is it? <laughs> it's only because they say, because it's very much on the name. Yeah. Because they say, you know, every time we confess the name, the name, the name, the name, the name. And then we haven't got the name quite right. Yeah, but that's because we, we are overemphasizing our understanding of name rather than picking up the whole sense that it, it encapsulates the nature of the person and who he is. That's what it is. It's, it's, and, and there is authority. I, there's a lovely transition. Okay, um, Joseph is told, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You come to, to Philippians, where it talks about every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And it's talking about Jesus there. And, and it sounds as if he's been given a name that is like almost going beyond Jesus. It's like a name that's above every other name, but it's already been called Jesus. So how's he got this more powerful name in the resurrection? Well, the only difference is that when Joseph heard that name, it was he will save his people from their sins. Mm. And when you come into Philippians, he has done everything that's necessary to save people from their sins. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's the power in the name, the fact that Jesus accomplished everything on the cross and rose again in power and authority. Why isn't he called Emmanuel? Because in the, in the prophecies that lead up to this Savior's birth, mm -hmm. it says that and he'll, his name will be Emmanuel. And I know that means his name will be God with us. Mm -hmm. But why, why wouldn't you just say he will be Emmanuel rather than his name will be? That, well, that it, seems like a, it seems like a little contradiction, that his name's going to be this, and then they're like, cool, Bob. But it's not Bob, it's Jesus. <laughs> it's not a problem, is it? Because there are, there are names by which he's known. He's known as Emmanuel. He's known as Wonderful. He's known as Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. These are all names and titles by which he's known. Mm. The reason we focus on Jesus as the name that saves us is because that name includes that concept of salvation. He's the one who's come to save. So that is the one that we, we, we pin on, but all the others are relevant. Okay. I mean, he is with us. He's, he is God with us. You must have been in church in some Emmanuel. Oh, no, I know I have. I'm just, I'm just asking all the, uh, all, the, all the awkward questions. All the awkward questions that people, people think about. People might think we prepared this. I have. You have. I <laughs> I've, haven't. I've, I've written this up. I'm getting it straight at me here. Oh, no. <laughs> um, okay, coming, coming to the, 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 the salvation bit. Why, why did Jesus have to die? Like, there's that point where he, you said earlier, he can forgive sin. Only God can convi convi uh, uh, forgive sins. Mm -hmm. And Jesus, you know, takes that man. And says, Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Mm -hmm. He forgives him. So if he has the power to forgive before his death, why does he need to die? Well, you know, we need more than forgiveness, don't we? And forgiveness is great. It wipes the slate clean. But we need something to give us the power to live a different kind of life. And there's a sense in which Jesus died to deal with that sin nature, and he rose again in new life so that we can have new life. So that the transaction of the cross is just so much bigger than securing forgiveness. They had forgiveness in the Old Testament, didn't they? I mean, their, their sins could be wiped away by an animal sacrifice for, for telling what Jesus was going to do, of course. But 
And in a sense, what Jesus did on the cross had a, a retrospective effect as well as a, a, a foregoing effect. Mm. But, but there's something really powerful about Jesus going to the cross and, and paying the price for us. You, know, you go back into the Old Testament, you know, the wages of sin is death because that was what they were told. If you rebel, death will be the outcome. And I think on the day that they, they ate of that fruit, something on the inside of them died. And Jesus came to deal with that death and to bring light and immortality to light through the gospel. So these are big things. The cross is a big, big thing. So why do we say that Jesus came to die for your sins? He came to forgive you. That's, that's what we lead with. But you're saying there's, there's more, it's more yeah, than that. It is. I think we, could, we lead with that because there is a need for people to, to know forgiveness. And it's true that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Uh-huh. And the fact that Jesus could talk about your sins are forgiven, it was because he could pronounce that forgiveness on the basis of what he's going to do on the cross. And that's why people knew forgiveness in the Old Testament, because those animal sacrifices that prefigured were not empty because there was going to come a point when all that was offered was going to be, as it were, gathered up into something much more significant than the death of Jesus on the cross. So I, I see there's a very clear link between forgiveness and the death on the cross. Yeah. But I do see so much more there as well. I think that you know, one of the big problems that happened um, right back at the beginning is that when humanity decided it didn't want to have a closer relationship with God, but wanted to live more independently, there was that sort of growth of independence in our humanity. And one of the things that the cross speaks to us about is God cutting back in that sort of overgrowth of the flesh. And he wants to put new power and new life in us. So all of this is, is, is being accomplished on the cross. It was huge. And it, also it talks, doesn't it, about God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. So this is the climactic moment in history when everything is put right. Okay. We're just waiting for the outworking of it in yeah, some areas. Yeah, still today. Still, yeah. yeah. Um, you, you mentioned briefly the resurrection, but before we get there... There are those three days or mm-hmm. two, you know, yeah, however yeah. you calculate it. Where was he in those three days? Was he in hell? Was he in heaven? It's a tricky one. Um, you're trying to put together a certain number of scriptures and to do justice to all of them. Yeah. He said to the dying thief, today you will be with me in paradise. But there he could be talking about I in the plural form in the same way that it was talked of in God in the in the beginning. Yeah, um, the, the 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 bit that often catches people out is paradise. Where's paradise? Um, you could argue at that particular point in time that the system that was there in the Old Testament, Sheol, and yeah. the understanding in the Jewish community was that the upper regions of Sheol, the were paradise. Dead. Yeah, and so Jesus saying, "Today you will be with me in paradise," might mean that you know Jesus was going to Sheol, the place of the dead, but. Um, the other scripture you'd need to bring in is when Jesus talks to Mary in the garden and said, I've not yet ascended to my father and your father, to my God and your God. After so, his resurrection. After his resurrection. Okay. So there's a sense there that he's, you know, this whole idea, did Jesus go to heaven, would probably suggest no, not in that period, because he's saying in the resurrection he hasn't yet been, been to the father. So there are, are scriptures about preaching to angelic spirits that are held in bondage in that period of time. Mm-hmm. And there are, for some people, it's, it's often taught that 
somehow he descended into hell and became, as it were, subject to the devil's torment until he broke free on that final day and took the keys of death and hell from the devil. I think that's a little bit of a parody. I can't see that in scripture. It, it makes for a great story, but it doesn't quite line up with all the verses in the Bible and, mm. and how it should be seen. So what did he do during those three days? Well, I think you've got to look at the verses where it talks about preaching to the spirits. I don't know what that means. I don't think anyone does for sure. Um, but you have to take account of it. You have to take account of the fact that he did rise victorious from the grave and obviously triumphed over Satan in that. But I think that triumph over Satan wasn't so much a, a great battle. I think the great battle took place on the cross. And I think uh, Psalm 22 was fulfilled on the cross, that whole picture of everything coming against Christ on the cross mm. and him triumphing over it. So exactly what happened in that period of time is difficult to define. But we know that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose victorious. So I think that's why the Bible doesn't focus much on that particular period. And it gives rise to all kinds of speculation. I mean, everyone has a go at trying to work out what happened in those days exactly and how the timetable fits together. But I think we need to move quite quickly from an understanding of the cross to an understanding of the resurrection. But when Jesus did die, mm -hmm. did, he, did he die purely physically or spiritually? I think he died physically. The question about did Jesus die spiritually comes from the fact that there are verses in the New Testament that talk about him being the firstborn from the dead. And yeah. so it's trying to shape back into the Old Testament where I'm fairly certain that something happened spiritually when those first humans rebelled against God. And they were told that in the day you eat of that, you will die. I think something did die on them. They probably definitely knew something that was like a spiritual death at that point. Mm. And we're told in Ephesians that outside of Christ, we are spiritually dead. Mm. And so there is an argument that Jesus had to identify with us in that spiritual death in order to be the first born from the dead. But I don't think that new birth, as we experience it, was anything that Jesus himself had to go through. He didn't go through spiritual death and need a spiritual resurrection. When he died on the cross and was made sin for us, he was actually made a sin offering. He was taking our place. It's almost like the, uh, the breath of life that, that God does through Adam's nostrils, that ruach that he breathes mm. in, is made possible again. Yes, I think that's, that's a, a large part of what God is, is, is doing. That he's, he's, he's actually doing more than that because part of that challenge we have in the Old Testament is that when God breathed that ruach, that life into them, he didn't breathe all of his life into no. them because they were able to receive more life from the fact that there was a tree of life. Yeah, yeah. And, and so when we discover in, in John 10 that he says he's come to give us life in all its abundance, it's not just the breath in our nostrils, it's the power of God that has been, as it were, not available ever since the tree of life was turned down in the garden, but is now available to us in Christ. And, and the, the tree of life that you spoke about, is, mm. a lot of people attribute that to being the same as the cross. Is it the same as the cross? Well, what happens is that the cross becomes, as it were, that source of supply for us. So it's like the new tree of life. Yes, in many ways it is. Whilst yeah. being an object of death as well. Yes, because from that death on the cross, life flows. Okay, interesting, yeah. So why, um, why is there the need to rise from the dead? Because he could, he could have just died for our sins 
and popped up back to heaven. Yes, you could indeed. <laughs> but then the real issue that surrounds that is that we are not just talking about God taking away our sins, even though he died to take away the sin of the world. We're also looking at the fact that he has come to give us life in all of its fullness. Mm -hmm. And so the resurrection is absolutely essential. One reason being because it validates what was done on the cross. You know, if you, if you hadn't seen Jesus alive again, you might have had that question, well, did, did it work? Didn't it work? Mm -hmm. Okay, the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom, graves were shaken open, but actually to see Jesus again on the earth is the proof that he triumphed over death. So is it, is it essential then for believers? Because the, there was this article in, I think it was The Guardian, um, where they had, it might be, they, they questioned like a huge a population of a country or something. Uh, how many people believed in the resurrection? Christians, they were mm. asking. And I think it was only about 75% of people who believed in the resurrection. Mm. They believed in the death, but not the resurrection. And even less of the clergy <laughs> believed in the resurrection. That's sad. <laughs> which is, really is. which is you know. But is it, is it would you say it's an essential for a Christian to believe those two things? death and resurrection rather than just death? We're saved because we believe that Jesus died for our sins. Exactly. We can receive that. But we also know that Jesus died for our sins and he wants to put new life in us. I think seeing the resurrection power of God in Christ raised from the dead and also knowing the power of the Holy Spirit has poured out on the day of Pentecost is part of the fullness of our salvation. And I think it's really uh, sad that people can claim to really know what Christianity is about and not tap into the power of the resurrection that we see in the life of Jesus raised from the dead and in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So they, they are all essential, really? I think for the fullness of salvation, you'd have to say that. that sorry, that, that just turn of phrase, is, it makes me go, hmm, what do you mean by fullness yeah, of salvation? Yeah, I you go, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, Does that mean someone can have partialness no, no. of salvation? Well, no. I think that what God does is wanting to bring salvation to us uh -huh. in a way that we take hold of everything. I think that some people fail to take hold of all that God has given them, but it doesn't mean to say that God restricts. So in other words, I'm not saying that there's a limit in what God does. I think when God saves, he saves fully, okay? But I think there are people that don't fully appropriate the fullness that You're God talking has about begun. the experience in life yeah, that we sure, have rather absolutely. than just yeah. in, uh, in eternity. Yeah. So there are people who are saved. And will enjoy eternity. And will enjoy but eternity. But will miss out a lot if they don't get However, are theologically really quite skewed and don't really have the fullness of it today. Today is where I'd put it, yeah. They're missing out right now on what they could be fully enjoying. This is kind of bre breaching on, on the next podcast, but don't you have to be born of, again of the Spirit to be saved? Yeah, and we can talk about that in the next podcast. Right, okay, we? we will, we will. All right, um, th about the resurrection. Um, th I've, I quite often say that the, the whole Christian faith rests on that resurrection, at least in believing it or being able to prove it. Because for me, why, why Jesus had to rise from the dead as well, rather than just the fullness of life, 
is also so we had something to talk about for the next 2,000 years. Because um, otherwise, I think people would have stopped believing very, 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 very quickly. Sure. Um, so wh- how can we be confident in the resurrection? Yeah, someone once said it's, uh, from a historical point of view, it's one of the best attested facts in history, yeah. just from the documentation and everything else. And also from just the change in the lives of the people that were witnesses to the resurrection. And I don't just mean witnesses to the resurrection in the fact that they'd seen it, mm. because Jesus actually could have sent them all out the day after he rose from the dead, say, now you've seen it, go out and tell everyone. But he didn't. He said, you've got to wait until you've received power from on high. And that was because he wanted them to be witnesses of the resurrection, not just having seen it, but having experienced something of that resurrection life on the inside of them. And it's some of those kind of things where you're looking at a transformative experience that really, for me, points to the resurrection. It is a historical event. You can look at the records. You can check it out historically. You know, there's no other explanation that satisfies the disciples didn't steal the body. There was something that really transformed them. But to know that transformative power ourselves is really, I think, the key to knowing the fullness and effectiveness of the resurrection. There, I've used fullness again for you. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Um, Okay. You said this phrase earlier, firstborn of the dead. Yeah. Is, Is that purely talking spiritually then? Because we see other people who are who come back to life before Jesus. We see Lazarus, the other people he raises. There are people in the Old Testament that come back to life. Yeah. Which kind of goes, well, he's not the firstborn of the dead. Yes, I know, but it's firstborn of the dead in terms of having resurrection life. Everyone else who was brought back then died what, again, didn't they? It was only Oh, okay. So resurrection permanent. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that helps. Yeah, that helps. That's nice. I like that. Um now, there's this little weird bit in Matthew uh, 27 um, where when Jesus dies, you mentioned it, that the veil is torn, the earthquake rumbles, and tombs are shaken open. But it doesn't stop there. It says on the day he died, the saints are raised from the dead, and after his resurrection, they leave their tombs. I don't know what they were doing in their tombs for three days, but they leave their tombs and were seen by many. Mm-hmm. What is that about? I have no idea. But Because I mean, that suggests that hundreds of people came back to life and were just walking about. Is that? Well, obviously there were things happening on the streets of Jerusalem that really were mind-blowing and people were having to record what they'd seen. I think the only thing I can say is that that just shows that something that was so cataclysmic for the whole of history was taking place that mm. that it wasn't just something you know it's like there's such a shaking that that I don't know how do you want to put it I mean we could try and, I just don't know because it's only I, mentioned there so I don't no. I, does it does it mean that other people were resurrected from the dead as well at, on that day because that kind of diminishes Jesus it doesn't diminish Jesus, but it diminishes the resurrection because suddenly loads of people are appearing to everybody. Well, I think actually rather than diminish it, it, it shows that there was something seismic that was happening. No, but I mean, like if you kind of if you're there and you're like, wow, Jesus, he's back to life. I look so so, 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 so and Fred. Else. Yeah, I know. I know Derek. Oh, mate, Julie. Oh, never mind. I've forgotten about Jesus now because Julie's back. Yes, I know. But you wouldn't forget about Jesus. You'd forget about Julie. You'd forget about Bob. You'd forget about all of these other yeah, people. Yeah, but Julie was a mate. Yes, I know. Was she? All right. Okay, fine. 
<laughs> but I don't, think, I don't think what Julie received at that point was the kind of resurrection life that Jesus knew. So they all died again? I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. I have no idea. That sucks. You'd have thought if you came back to life with Jesus, you'd be there for good. Be like, we're going back up with you. What if you believe in Jesus? Yes. Yeah, okay, fair. Oh, that's like a second chance then for them. That's, no, because they're the saints already. They're the righteous dead. Um, okay, so moving swiftly on, uh, I want to talk about the Ascension. Uh, the Ascension, big part of the Christian faith. Uh, after Jesus died and he rose again, he spent 40 days with his disciples, appeared to more than 500 people, and then was like, go preach the gospel, wait for, wait for me, and then ascended to his Father in heaven. Mm-hmm. Now, my problem with it is that it only appears, and I know you're going to argue me on this, but don't. It only appears once because Mark, the, the second, the last chapter of Mark is, is like newer than the rest of it. It's like an add-on um, from somebody else. It doesn't appear in John. It doesn't appear in Matthew. It only appears in Luke and the book of Acts, which is by surprise. Luke. Luke. So Luke is the only person who wrote about the Ascension and he wasn't even there. Mm-hmm. So what's your problem? Why don't you have a problem with that? <laughs> I don't have a problem Why? with that. Why? Well, look, the reality is Jesus said that he's going to ascend. Luke records that. I don't have Luke a problem again. with it. Yes, I know. What's the problem with Luke? No, he's but I'm probably... just saying, if, if I was one of the disciples and then, you know, if I was Peter and, you know, my best mate just ascended from heaven that would be like the first thing i wrote okay maybe and Matthew would. Would, would write you know after you know go and make some all nations preaching and then he it doesn't it just took a sentence all he had to go and then he ascended to his father in heaven yeah great triumphant note but they finished the gospels on the resurrection yeah, 40 days later like matthew stops literally the moment before he ascends yeah why? Does it, does it not bother you at all? It doesn't bother me at okay, all. Okay, well, comfort me. It bothers me. It bothers you. Explain it to me. Look, Why? No, no, no. The most important thing is not, is not seeing Jesus go up. That, that, that's not the important thing. Okay, so it's, it's the fact that he is right now with his Father in heaven. And the evidence for that is that he pours out the Holy Spirit. So Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, as recorded by Luke, says that... <laughs> says that look he he's been exalted to the father's right hand and he has received this which he's now pouring out upon us they could see the evidence of what was being poured out on them. it was changing people's lives in front of their eyes and so that was the proof of the ascension it wasn't so much that they suddenly saw the bottom of his feet as he went up through the clouds it was that you know suddenly <laughs> they're able to receive that which they couldn't receive before because he'd now received it from the Father in heaven. I get that. But I would just... You would have liked them to have said a bit more. Okay, fine. Is it, is it important then to, to believe in the ascension? Because we see, we see in his resurrection time, Jesus can appear and reappear at will. He does that a few times. So is it just plausible that he stopped reappearing. Yeah, and then you'd have to explain then why was the promise fulfilled that he would receive the Spirit from the Father and pour that out upon us? So where was he on the day of Pentecost? He must have been at the Father's right hand. But he does appear again after Pentecost. He appears to Paul. Yes. 
and Stephen After the ascension. Him, yeah, and Stephen sees him. Yeah, but that, but yeah, what does that mean? Was it that the heavens opened and he saw mm. saw Jesus? I mean, that's probably what happened. Yeah, yeah, okay, because that's the same as Stephen's. Same as Stephen, yeah. I know. It's just a little little qualm I have about the ascension not being mentioned enough. I know. If you'd been the editor, it would have got in. Yeah, absolutely. It's an important part. Right, well, that's all we've got time for about uh, The Sun, part two of the Trinity. Um, thanks so much, Hugh. Uh, thanks for watching or, uh, or listening. Make sure you do uh, subscribe, like, and leave us a review. Um, and see you next time for the last part of this series, all about the Holy Spirit. See you next time.